there are different ways of preaching a sermon. I started my sermon last week in uh, pointing this out to you. There are different ways of preaching, uh, different styles or ways of format, formatting. Uh, broadly speaking, there's what's known as expositional preaching, which is what uh, is our sort of default way of preaching in this church, which is when you take a book of the Bible and you start with chapter 1, verse 1, and then you just move your way through. You move your way through expositionally. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 3, and you move your way through the text. Uh, it's a very helpful way of preaching because it helps you to stay in context with the text. That said, there are a lot of folks who claim to be expository preachers who are, who, who are uh, nonetheless not tethered to the text. They'll work their way through the text, but often the preaching points have nothing to do with the passage. So being expositional doesn't assure that you will always be treating the text with care and attention. Uh, suffice it to say, expositional preaching is a great way of moving through the Bible, and that's our default way of preaching. Uh, that said, another broad way of preaching is what's known as topical preaching. And topical preaching is a very important way of preaching. It's where you take a topic. Say you want to understand what the Bible has to say about money or relationships or angels or salvation or heaven or hell, you know, down the line, and then you move through the Bible. The Bible is one book, but it is made up of 66 books. And you move through the Bible and you go, what does the Bible have to say about this particular topic? Topical preaching, if done rightly, will still be expositional, which is to say it will care about uh, what this chapter and this verse means in its particular context, where you find it inside of the Bible. And if you are going to have expositional care when you preach topically, it actually ends up being a much harder way of preaching because every passage that you turn to, you have to be attentive to, to treat that passage in its original context. Uh, topical preaching is important for churches because there's things going on in the world that we need to make sense out of. So if you're preaching through Second Chronicles or Leviticus or something, and you did chapter 1 one Sunday and chapter 2 the next Sunday and chapter 3 the following Sunday, and, and let's say uh, all of a sudden our nation was invaded or someone we love in the congregation died or, or something wild happened in the culture, it's good pastorally to pause and say, okay, I know we're in Leviticus 4, but sister so-and-so died. Let's process what the Bible has to say about death in the afterlife, mourning, grieving. I, I know we were in Leviticus, but the president was assassinated. Let's talk about the problem of evil or whatever. So you pause and you help teach people to read the Bible as it relates to something that is in their face in the culture. Uh, that said, last week I paused to introduce a topical message, and today I'm pausing to do the same. Uh, be that as it may, we are still drawing into the text of Scripture. We are a, a Bible-teaching church, so I need you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John and find your way to chapter 4. Talking about topical preaching, talking about expository preaching, another way of preaching is biblical theological preaching, where you're taking... Uh, not necessarily a topic or a specific book, but you're looking at a, a, a broad uh, 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 line in, in Scripture. You're looking at a biblical, a biblical theological theme. You're looking at maybe what a particular author, so like Paul has written a handful of books in the Bible, Moses has written a handful of books in the Bible. And in this case this morning, I've asked you to turn to John, and he has written a few letters inside of the Bible. He's written the gospel in the Bible. 
And so this morning I will be reflecting with a biblical theological Johannine uh, look at what John has to say about a particular topic. And I'll share with you shortly what that is. So if you have your Bibles open to 1 John, this book is a historic letter that is written by the historic figure, the Apostle John, who was one of the leaders of Jesus' first church in Jerusalem, and also a personal eyewitness of the historical Jesus, Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Scholars note that this book, 1 John, was used by the historical fi figure Polycarp, Polycarp who knew John in his youth, and Papias, who in the early 2nd century, and, and later in that century, Irenaeus, who also knew Polycarp in his youth, uh, specifically attributed this book to the historic figure John. All of the Greek and Latin church fathers accepted this epistle as Johannine. It, it's a book that comes to us from this historical figure John. In addition to this letter and two others in our New Testament, John also wrote, as I noted a moment ago, the Gospel of John, a Gospel account of Jesus' life. Among the many themes in John's writings that we have in the New Testament, John places an emphasis on the subject of love, and that is the topic that I want to engage in today's sermon. I want to talk about love. The title of my sermon is, What's Love Got to Do? Dot, 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 dot. It is a play on the 1984 song, What's Love Got to Do With It?, sung by Tina Turner. And I'll, I'll share with you why. I cut it off at What's Love Got to Do? Because one, I needed to fit it all on one nice line. But uh, also, there's a bit of a pun in cutting it off at What's Love Got to Do? And I'll share with you uh, the point about that later in the message. So uh, if, you're, if you're young, I don't know, you might not know who Tina Turner is, but this thing sold two million copies worldwide that year. It was the second biggest single in 1984. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, along with uh, being on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Uh, so if you don't know, just go on YouTube, type it in later. It's a, it's a catchy song. On the hook of the song, there is this refrain, what's love got to do? Got to do with it. What's love but a second-hand emotion? Now think about that for a moment. A second hand emotion. Love as a second-hand emotion was a common view in the 80s. It was a common view in the post-war era of the 20th century. It continues today in the 21st century alongside many other competing and confused definitions of love. Our culture really misunderstands love. We over-sentimentalize love as a mere second-hand emotion or even a first-hand emotion, and thus we trivialize love into a meaningless subjective feeling that comes and goes. We talk about falling in love and falling out of love. Uh, it sounds like love is like a trip cord or something, a booby trap, you know, oh man, I, I fell into love. Worse than misunderstanding love in this way, we pervert love in ways to rationalize immoral lust, which we justify by claiming, oh, but it's love. And then to add insult to injury, we take this twisted love and we merge it with identity politics so as to identify one's loves with who they are as a person. What, what you love, who you love, that identifies you as a person. Now this, this love then becomes actually who you are in a postmodern context like the 21st century. So here we are, it's 2023, in the month of June, when this misunderstanding is very obvious as pop culture pushes a distorted, dystopian love on us, speaking of Christ's church. 
I said last week what pumpkin spice is to November, what peppermint is to December, the rainbow is to June. And so for 30 days this month, not to mention uh, the weeks in May leading up to this month, rainbows are popping up everywhere in solidarity with a novel, modern, progressive movement that is bent against science and traditional communities of faith, especially Christians. So what's the reason for the season? Well, in our culture's secular liturgical calendar, June has been baptized as so-called Pride Month. And among the holiday greetings for the month, we often hear sayings or chants about love, such as, love is love, love wins, hashtag. Uh, now, I want to, in today's topical message, deconstruct these sayings by looking at some Johannine texts and what God reveals in His Scripture about what true love is. I want to deconstruct those sayings specifically, love is love and love wins, but first, what is the love that is celebrated for this Pride Month, in, in case uh, you missed last week's message and you don't have TV and friends and you're like, what, what, what is going on? What's Pride Month? I missed that. Well, it, it relates to a community that identifies uh, by the acronym LGBTQIA. If you haven't heard this, this is an evolving acronym, LGBTQIA, for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer questioning, intersex, and asexual. There are many other terms that are used, such as non-binary, pansexual, and, and people use different terms uh, across the gamut in this, so it's kind of evolving, to uh, talk about love, gender, sexuality, physiological sex characteristics, and of course, it's worth noting that this community itself is not unified. Many in the L and the G community are not exactly on board with the T community. Specifically, there are some in the community among the L's and the G's who think that gender or sex are actually real biological realities. Namely, that biological female individuals have two chromosomes, XX, and those who are biologically male have one X and one Y chromosome, XY. Uh, so it's not a monolith. They don't, they don't all agree on this. They have a general agreement in terms of what love is. But when the T's say, I'm a female trapped in a male body who likes men, uh, some of the L's and the G's might feel like, no, you're just, uh, you're just a gay guy who likes men. Uh, so there's debate amongst them. That said, the question in their community, uh, whether gender and sex are biological, is something that science has uniformly spoken to. Not to mention it is something that thousands of years of human history have spoken to, and more importantly, it is something that, that this book, the Bible, has spoken to with a unique revelation from God that male and female are more than mere biology and matter, but they are deep metaphysical and spiritual realities created by God and a part of His order. Last week, I laid a scientific and scriptural foundation for what I just said, and today I want to build on it by addressing the super-duper common retort when we present science, when we talk about uh, faith in 21st century, and the retort goes like this, yeah, well, you and your science, uh, so what? We're in love, and love is love, and love wins, and you can't tell me who or what I can love. Now, apart from God revealing um, himself and telling us what love is, and, and, and ultimately who love is, I would agree with that retort. We would all be left in the dark. Um, we, we would all be left in the dark. But, you know, if there's, if there's no God, if there's no order, yeah, you know, who, who am I to say? However, as shared last week, there's scientific grounds for the existence of God. 
And, and, and there's, there's grounds that we can make for a specific God and for this word that we have in front of us. Um, th there's scientific grounds for the existence of God. I covered it in last week's message and, and elsewhere in this pulpit if you troll the sermons online. But if God stopped there at just, you know, giving us revelation of his existence, and God didn't reveal himself any further beyond science and nature like he has in, in this book, we would all be left in the dark taking guesses at what God thinks about uh, love and sexuality and the rest. Friends, without this book, I submit to you that we would know very little about God. With, with, without this book, I, I would contend that God would actually be uh, a deadbeat dad who created the world and then just dipped out, you know, oh, I got her pregnant, I wasn't ready for this, and changes his phone number and just dips out like a deadbeat dad. Uh, leaving us on Ancestry.com, where are you, Daddy, trying to find him? Or her, or, or it, or they, or, you know, we'd have no idea. We'd have no conclusive evidence. Scientifically speaking, we can get at the existence of God. There's good grounds for that. But we wouldn't know anything personal about him. This, by the way, is how observational science works. You, you could look at me, and you could deduce certain things about me that I exist, you can guess my age, you can, you know, you could do, do certain things about someone by looking at them, but you never get to know them in any kind of intimate way without them revealing themselves, without them telling you who they are and what's going on inside. I'm happy to say this morning that God is not a deadbeat dad. I'm happy to say this morning that God created the world and he has revealed himself in this book. And, and because of this, we should all lay our subjective opinions about what love is or gender or sexuality or politics or whatever else, we should all lay our subjective opinions down and we should let God speak and say, God, I have these ideas. I want to hear from you and let him be the arbiter of what we should hold true. For sake of time, um, there are good reasons for believing in God not being a deadbeat dad, and there are good reasons for believing in the revelation of this book that is in front of us, a book that God has given as a revelation of himself in human communication, humans writing to humans, superintended by God the Holy Spirit, so that the words those humans wrote in the Bible actually communicate who God is, what God is up to, and they do so without error. And further, that these human words that the Spirit has superintended on the pages of Scripture, those words don't just stay on the pages of Scripture, they're actually animated with supernatural power to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Who better to communicate on the topic of love than the historical John, a human like us, who knew God the Son in human nature and who by the Spirit was given this revelation? 1 John chapter 4, draw your eyes at verse 7, please. We read this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now let's stop there and just soak in this revelation that the Spirit has given through the beloved disciple John. Let's, let me draw your eyes here at, at the final three English words there, God is love. In the Greek, it is actually four words, hotheos agape estin, which literally I would translate into English as the God love he is. The God love he is. 
the God, Hathaos. Love, he is, agape estin. This brings us to the first point on your outline for today's message, what's love got to do? And the first point is that love has to do with our God. Notice the text does not say God is loving, rather it says God is love. I want to explain what it means to say God is love, but first let me unpack this apophatically. Uh, when we talk about uh, reasoning around something apophatically, we're looking at something, someone, and we're trying to understand something, someone, and we do it by discussing what something, someone is not so that we can better understand what it is. That's what it is to do apophatic deduction. So apophatically, what does this hotheos agape esten not mean? God is love, what does that not mean? First, it does not mean the opposite, that love is God. <laughs> this is important. I'm not just playing semantics up here. This is, this is actually important. It does not mean that love is God. It logically does not follow that just because God is love, that love is God. Now, now follow me. Uh, just because X is Y, it does not mean that Y is X. Follow me for an example, if I've lost you. All dogs are mammals. Amen? Does that make sense? All dogs are mammals. But not all mammals are dogs. You see the point? Now, in the case of God, God is not a member of a species, like canines or dogs. God is not a member of a species or anything but himself. So while we say God is X, we never want to say X is God for it makes something stand over God to define God as opposed to God being the grounding of defining himself, the giver of meaning to all that exists in his creation. Apophatically, it does not mean that, that love is God. Apophatically, it does not mean that God is our cultural definition of love. It does not mean that God is all that we think of when we think of love, and then we're projecting that onto God. It doesn't work that way. It is not an endorsement of our subjective definitions of love. I say this because often when someone wants to have a principled conversation about something of being immoral, particularly around something sexual, it is often the retort, yeah, well, God is love. And you've got to go, hang on, uh, we don't want to project onto God our definition of love. Instead, we need to let God be God and let God be the definer of what love is in himself. And another way of saying this is God is the dictionary, okay? And thus, you know, we say that sometimes when I look up, uh, we usually use it negatively, right? You know, when I look up stupid in the dictionary, I see you, you know? Uh, but there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no definer over God. God's the dictionary. And thus, it turns out that much of what we call today Love does not appear in God's definition of love when you look it out because we don't project love onto God. God projects what love is from himself. Apophatically, uh, thirdly, when Scripture says God is love, it does not mean that God is an impersonal force or an abstract. Love, you know, I, I feel the love in the air. No, God's not a force or an abstract. You see this in New Age religions, you see this in uh, even Christian cults, this idea of sort of there's forces out there and you can control it by the power of your words and positive thinking and you can manipulate some kind of spiritual force. God is not an impersonal force or an abstract. God is a personal being who eternally dwells in three persons, 
A common way of depicting this and explaining this, we say there's one God in three persons, the Son, the Father, the Spirit. They're distinct persons. So the Son is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Spirit's not the Father. The Spirit's not the Son. And yet the Spirit is God, and the Son is God, and the Father is God. There's only one God who eternally dwells in three persons. This then helps us to understand what love is. Love is something that is shared between a person or persons. This is one of the wonders of the doctrine of the Trinity as revealed in the Bible. For you see, if God were just one person, if God were just one person, and, and this wasn't the case, if God were just one person, and Father, Son, and Spirit were just titles for one person, the same way husband, dad, and pastor are titles that are given to just this one person, if God were just one person, then 1 John 4, 8 could not be true. One person can be loving, but one person cannot be love, for love is what is shared between persons. It's a relation. When you think about um, the relation of taller than, or shorter than, or hotter than, or colder than, those aren't things that exist. You're never like, oh, taller than just entered the room. What's up, taller than? No, taller than is a relation that stands in between a person who is shorter and a person who is taller. Love is a relation that stands between a person and another or, or others. You have to have more than one person to have love. Even further, follow me, if God were only one person before he created the universe and other beings in the universe, like angels, humans, and animals, God could not have been loving before the creation because he was the only person in existence. So prior to creating other persons, the one unipersonal God could not have love because it's just that one person there and love is a relation and there's nothing else to relate to before the creation. With this in mind, here's the philosophical problem for a one-person God. After creating, God then uh, would uh, have the potential to love and then God would have to actualize love by a decision that God would make in himself as opposed to it being fundamental to his nature. So again, this universal God could not be love intrinsically in his nature, as we've just read here in 1 John 4, 8. Even further problematic is this universal God would have to learn how to love by making decisions in time. I choose to love you, I choose to do this, I choose to love you, which means that this God could not be eternal, unchanging, and all-knowing, and all other sorts of attributes that we think of when we think of the most perfect being, by definition, God. A universal God would be an evolving and changing, and, and a unipersonal God would be trapped in time, looking for love in all the wrong places, as we say. Whereas an eternal, all-knowing, and triune God would be love in himself, you see, for the persons of the Godhead have been loving each other for all of eternity. Before there was anything in creation, there was an eternal God in three persons who is love because of this reality that there is one God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect union. The Son loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Father loves the Son. You have this one God in a perfect union of love. Hence, God is love. It is worth noting that the ancient African theologian Augustine and others following after him in the history of the church spoke of the Spirit as the vinculum amoris, which is the bond of love, 
linking together the first and the second persons in the Trinity. The, the, the Spirit it, uh, operates Himself as a way of bonding the divine uh, relations in God with love and as, as well in the incarnation of the Son and bonding the divine and human natures in Christ. Or as John simply put it, God is love. If I lost you on that, follow me. In the Father and the Son and the Spirit, among their persons and relations, there is this perfect love. And that is the grounding for how we define love. We don't have any other, any, any other authority over this. We start when we say, what is love? God is love. That's our start. This eternal triune God who has perfect love in Himself. In the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit, this love. This triune God is love. Skeptics of the biblical God might say, well, why three? Why do you have to have three? If love uh, just requires a, a relation between two, why couldn't you have just a, a, a two-head God? Or what about a four-head God? Or how about a dozen persons, you know? Uh, well, for starters, asking why someone is the way they are is not a logical retort to a position, any more than asking why a force has four legs instead of five legs. I mean, what about eight legs? That would be cool, like a centipede horse or something like that. Why, why, uh, why does the pigeon only have two wings? I, I think the pigeon should have four wings. Well, that's great. When you become a creator, you can make pigeons with four wings. But it is the way that it is. That's reality. That said, there is one God in three persons. That is the way He is. But let's muse on this. It is worth noting that three is a minimum requirement or rather a most fundamental makeup for a family or a community. Not, not, not merely being a pair, but more. Namely, a harmony of relationships. And in this harmony, in this divine essence, in the one God, there's, there's love. There's deep personal love. So deep and so intimate and so pure that what John has said is, is the fitting way of saying it. What is love? God is love. And in love, God created the universe and, and all living persons, angels and humans and creatures, to be in relationship with Him. And the crown of the creation, the most unique relationship with Him, save for in Himself between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, are humans. God made humans, according to Scripture, in His own image so that we would have a special relationship with Him, uniquely knowing and experiencing His love, the very intra-Trinitarian love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Sadly, humanity rejected this warm love, this warm light, and as a result, they were exiled from God's presence and entered into darkness as a just consequence for humanity's scandalous behavior to the beloved God. Speaking of His belovedness, God displayed how loving He is in the face of human rebellion by revealing to us that He knew beforehand what we would do, and in His eternal decrees beforehand, He freely chose to rescue us by sending the second person in God, God the Son, to become a man and live a loving life, a holy life, the life that humanity did not live, and to die at the hands of humanity in order to rescue and save a redeemed people for himself to experience his own triune love. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. 
John says we didn't love him first, but instead he, the triune God, chose to love us first. Worse than not loving him first, we actually first rejected his love. Like our, our parents, the first humans who started the rebellion, we too reject his love and his light. In the Gospel of John, John describes it this way as he speaks of God the Son coming to love humans in the flesh in human history. I'll put the Gospel of John in front of us so that we can keep first John and we can keep digging into a Johannine biblical theological understanding of love. John 1, look at this. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. They did not receive God the Son in the flesh, the historical Jesus. They, they rejected him. And here's the thing. God's all-knowing. God knew that was going to happen and he came anyway. That's love. That's love. This is God's love. This is real love. Love so amazing. You cannot find this kind of love anywhere. Not even in, in, in the religions that humans have, have made in the sands of time. The gods of humanity don't love like this. Uh, consider from among the big religious traditions. Let me use just one comparison here. Consider in the religion of Islam. Um, which develops hundreds of years after the time of Jesus. In Islam's holy book, the Quran... We read, let me give you just two examples to compare and contrast different religious traditions in terms of love. We read in Surah 3.32, Allah loves not those who reject faith. We read in Surah 2, uh, 27, uh, 276, Allah loves none who is ungrateful and persists in sin. Contrast that with what you have in front of you in, in, in John. Does he love sinners? Does he love those who reject the faith? Does he love those who are ungrateful? Absolutely. In fact, he does that first. Contrast this with the Scripture, the God who loves those who reject him, the God who loves those who are trapped in sin. Contrast this with Jesus who befriends sinners, he's a friend of sinners, who dies to save a, a, a people for himself who are sinners, even, even further, who takes sin on himself that's what propitiation is. That's what we just read in 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for sins. He took sin on Himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul explains that God the Father, and I quote, made Him who knew no sin, speaking of the incarnate Son, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus took sin on Himself. He did this. He, he taught this. Think of the famous parable of the prodigal son. It's about a rebellious son who rejects everything and is ungrateful and persists in sin, but the father welcomes him home. That's grace. Meanwhile, in that parable, the faithful son who didn't reject the father and was grateful is actually the one outside of the love of the father. Jesus gave stories of this radical love to rejectors, to rebels. You see, the gods of the world... And the gods of human history, they don't do this. Islam is an ancient faith. It doesn't offer you this. Our modern faiths, our modern gods don't love like this. Think about the god of this month, the god of pride. How does the god of pride treat those who disagree with its doctrines? The god of pride will cancel you. The god of pride will tear up your tracks and throw them in your face. 
The God of pride will shut you down. The God of pride will not forgive you. The God who is the Father, Son, and Spirit offers total forgiveness, total acceptance, says all can come to me. Jesus did not cancel. Jesus did not silence. On the contrary, Jesus cared and Jesus suffered. For whom? For his own people. Speaking of the people of Israel, uh, they rejected the love of the prophesied Jewish Messiah who the Son came to fulfill. In verse 14 of John's Gospel, in John chapter 1, it speaks of the Son becoming flesh, the Word becoming flesh. That is the person of the Son who is fully God in nature, who took on that additional human nature to be fully God and fully man in one person. As God, He extended divine love to sinners. As a human, He became uh, what would become, in the words of 1 John 4.10, the propitiation for sins. That last word there is key. Sins. Humans reject the love of God because of our sin. And that brings me to the next point. Our first point is our God. And if we are to understand love further, we need to talk about going off-grid. That is my second point. To go off-grid means to completely disconnect your, your, your home from a natural energy grid and then rely solely on energy that you generate for yourself, you know, batteries, storage, sol solar panels, and, and whatnot. We, we use that, the, the phrase going off the grid in that way, and I want to apply that metaphorically for those who go off grid and disconnect themselves from the love of God in Christ. When you unplug from the source, when you unplug from the source, you remove yourself from that. And so too, in the fall, humanity has unplugged itself from true light and true life. And therefore, the world is in darkness and death and dysfunction. Instead of loving God, we reject His love and we come under the love of the world. Look at how John describes it earlier. If you have 1 John 4 in front of you, just turn, turn back two chapters in John chapter 2, 1 John 2. Look at verse 15 here. John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there are two conflicting understandings of love. There is the love of the world, and there is the love that is in God. The one that is rooted in the world, the other that is rooted in God. The way of the world is not rooted in God, it's off-grid. The way of God is plugged into Him, the source, for He is love. The way of the Lord defines love of God. The way of the world defines a love that is not genuine biblical love. Which, taking this into consideration, it is not surprising that we hear people in the world saying things about love that is not true of love because it's not true of God. Now let me return to some of the, uh, the, the, the chants of the day. I mentioned love is love and love wins. Love is love. What does that mean? If we don't have an operating definition of love, what, what, what does that mean? It's, it's an empty tautology. It's, it's a lot similar to the slogan, trans men are men. Uh, what is a man, though? We, uh, you see, we can't even get a definition of that. So what, what, do you, what, is it, what does it mean? It's circular. When it's without a definition of what man is, you can't even get started and say uh, trans men are men, but what is, what is man? Any more than you can say love is love, well, what is love? If you don't have a definition, you're just trapped in circularity. In any case, the meta message here is that it is wrong to love. It is wrong to judge love, that is. 
if I, if I think love is, is this and you think love is that, who are you to impose your notion of love on me? Uh, love is love is a way of saying you can't judge me. It's wrong to judge me. Now, of course, this is a contradiction in terms because if you say it is wrong to judge others, you're actually making a judgment. Um, if it's wrong to judge others, then you can't even make that statement because it's wrong to judge, then how can you say that it's wrong to judge because you're making a judgment? It's like saying I can't speak a word of English. You just did. It's a contradiction in terms. Love, of lo love is love reduces the truth of love to subjectivism, to, to each his own. But intuitively, uh, even many in Pride Month know that not everything we say is love can actually be love. And so if you bring up in conversation here uh, examples of things that we would all intuitively say, well, that's not loving, then we start to have a point because uh, everyone makes moral assessments. So if love is love, what about pedophilia? Is pedophilia love? Uh, this is not a fringe or fear tactic in bringing up the subject of pedophilia, but it's an actual real topic. There are rich and powerful political lobbying groups and cultural moving movements and groups that are advancing the normalcy of pedophilia. Have you heard of the organization NAMBLA? It is an acronym for the North American Man-Boy Love Association. They are a very influential group that is laboring to lower the age of sexual consent to preteens. Uh, Abigail Schreer documents this in her recent book, Irreversible Damage, with shocking statistics and stories from real families of kids being targeted in this. And this brings me to the danger, though, of love is love. Well, how about this? Because there are people who would say that is love. This brings me back uh, to these, the, the, the second of these hashtags, love wins. Well, in, in light of uh, you know, something like pedophilia, do you want that to win? If, if love is supposed to win for all, what about preteens? If it's my body and I can do, therefore, whatever I want with it, and who are we to judge, why can't love win for consensual men and boys then? Where, where, where do you draw the line and how do you draw the line? You know, love wins, uh, according to this one source, became a trending hashtag of 2015 when the U.S. Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. Well, what about marriage for, uh, for kids? What about marriage for incestuous relationships? What, what, what about marriage for thruples? What about a foursome? If two couples that uh, each have a bisexual partner in them want to make it a foursome so that everyone has someone to love, who are, who are we to say that that's wrong? If everything wins, then marriage, not to mention love itself, becomes meaningless because everything you can squeeze into it. There's no apophatic to it. It's just whatever you want to say it is. This is the problem with gender today. We've tossed the scientific definitions of male and female out the window, arbitrarily claiming sex and gender are different things, one's a social construct, and, and then the words male and female then have no objective meaning because we can't even say what the social construct is. Nothing is off limits, except of course you Christians. You are off limits. You and your God and your religion, you're gonna get canceled and shut down if you disagree with us. In addition to love wins and love is love, there's another mantra. Have you seen it? Love is never wrong. Think about how dangerous that is. Love is never wrong? Never wrong? It's never wrong? I mean, what if a rapist said that? This is, this is dangerous socially and criminally. It is a license to do whatever you want as long as you claim you're in love when you do it. Uh, spiritually, this is dangerous because it, it, it further, spiritually, it's telling sinners, 
you don't have to listen to this Bible. You're fine just the way you are. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing to turn from, no one to turn to, nothing to confess. The guilt and shame you experience, those are just social things that are imposed on you. You are fine. There's no darkness. There's, there's no need for light because you are the light and everything you do is right. That is the opposite of what we read in John 1, 9 through 11. Look, 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 again, look again at this text at, at 9 through 11. For there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and to, to those who were his own, they did not receive him. They did not receive him. The Son in the flesh, the historical Jesus, they rejected His love. And knowing this in advance, He, he still comes. Un, unlike the God of June and the gods of ancient religions who say, uh, we don't love you if, if you're not grateful, if you don't, if you don't love us first. Un, unlike those gods, we're reading here of a God who says, I'm, I'm coming for you. I'm going to love you while you're kicking and screaming and spinning on me. In 1 John 4.10, we read, in this is love, not that we love, but that He loved us and sent His Son. The Father sent the Son. The Son became a, a, a propitiation. He ransomed the people for Himself. And by the power of the Spirit, rejectors of God's love are turned into receivers. And, 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 and more, importantly, more importantly, they're brought into this relationship. Look, 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 at, look at where we left off here at verse 12. But as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the, the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw the glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Notice here in, in the text that those who receive God's love and come to Jesus, that they do so not because of their own will, the will of man, but because of the will of God. They don't, they don't come to God and, and earn God's love. Rather, God comes to them and gives them love. So you see, God doesn't wait for us to be grateful and stop rejecting Him, and then He decides in return that He'll love us back, as we, we saw in the Quran, as we see in other world religions. Oh no, God says, I will come to you while you're in a state of rebellion and ungratefulness, and by my will, God's will, sinners are transformed. Insert amen. Let's try that again. <laughs> and by God's will, sinners are transformed. Amen. By the will of God, we come to know His love, and by His love, we're freed in the gift of salvation to walk in His will. On, the, on this note, I, I hope you still have your Bibles open in 1 John chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. Earlier we saw 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 17 regarding the freedom to do God's will. Now after we are saved and transformed by His loving decision and doing, we now have life. Look at verse 17. What, what do we read? The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The one who does the will of God. Now this brings us to our next point in our outline of trying to understand love and looking at these Johannine texts to get a better grasp from God's perspective of what love is, we move now to obedient grace. And now would you turn from 1 John 2, 17, where you are. You see, doing the will of God is tied to how we understand what the love of God is. Now turn to chapter 4. Turn from 1 John chapter 2 to 1 John 
chapter 4. So, so far we see that love is rooted in God. God is love. We see that, uh, that as sinners we're off the, the grid of His love and we need to be rescued, and that's exactly what He does. And that rescuing brings us back into the grid, into the family of God. Thirdly, now, we see that love involves obedience, doing the will of God. 1 John chapter 4, draw your eyes at verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Okay, we read this. Having received this propitiation, this gift, we're brought into spiritual union with God. We become members of His family. We're, we're in that family. We're in, it's amazing. What an amazing gift. We come to experience and understand something fundamental about love that flies in the face of our culture. Namely, that love is marked by obedience. You see, most people, when they hear the word obedience, they, they think it's bad. Uh, you know, obey. I don't want to do that. Well, Obedience is bad. Well, why is it bad? Because it's someone else imposing their will on me. And, and see, secular love, pride love, is me doing what I want. Love is being me in our culture, not, not you, not you telling me what to do. That's not loving. But biblical love is actually all about obedience. And really, it is not so much about what we're being subjected to, because we don't view God as an ogre. He's a loving father. And we've received a new heart. And so we have a different way of looking at love. It's not my will, but yours be done. You see, there are people who live their, their lives as, you know, my will be done. And there are people who live as thy will be done. And the latter is John's way of helping to teach us of what love is. Love is obedience. Mind you, this obedience comes because He first loved us. Look at, look, look at verse 11 where we left off. Beloved, if God so loved us, 1 John 4, 11, we also ought to love one another. Right? We also ought to love one another. This, 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 look, he, he loved us. We ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one's seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. You haven't seen the, the triune God, the immaterial, invisible God? We've seen God the Son in the, in the flesh. We've come to know His love. We've received this love, and that love abides in us because He loved me and because He is perfecting me, the text says. Uh, the word that is used here for perfecting is a word that means accomplishing. God's doing something in us, so obedience isn't something that we're white-knuckling and, oh, I don't want to obey God, but I'm going to make myself. It's God perfecting and accomplishing it in us. Mind you, not... Not loving them how they want, not loving them how the culture's changing definitions of what love feels. We're called to love them, we're called to love others in light of how God eternally and immutably feels. Going back to the first point, what is love? God is love. Going back to the second point, love is on God's grid. The, the third point, love is committed. It, 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 it obeys. It's a gracious kind of obedience. It's not flowing from, from the fear of the law and the wrath of God or meriting our salvation or making God happy or going through ritual, meritorious acts to somehow appease God. It's all by grace. In grace, we are free to obey. In obedience, we find and express godly love. 
Jesus said in John 14, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. He will come to him. He will make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. See how Jesus understood love and obedience? You see, love is not a mere uh, 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 feeling. It's a doing. And that's why I stopped the title where I did, What's Love Got to Do? Because love has something to do. In our public reading of Scripture in Deuteronomy 7 and 1 Corinthians 13, when we began service today, those definitions of love we see in those texts are all about action and obedience. On this note, since I've been weaving in applications about Pride Month, I would be remiss not to bring up uh, obedience in the church. Last week, I quoted an author in my sermon who wrote, this standard isn't just for LGBTQ people. Cisgender heterosexuals don't get to hop off the morality train just because they're attracted to the opposite sex. All of us are to submit, to obey, to God's design because rejecting God's design for sex is rejecting God. This, this sermon isn't just an application to Pride Month. None of us are unscathed. We, we all have sinned sexually. And so to understand love is to submit that to God and to say, God, we have not obeyed as we should. Thank you for sending the Son who obeyed perfectly as we should have and giving Him as a propitiation for us. And in light of that, we should be walking in His obedience, but we still make mistakes. And saying love is obedience, I, I, I don't want believers to just be thinking about those out there who are disobeying God. We need to think about our own lives. In saying love is obedience, I don't want believers to mishear me saying it's, it's, it's easy, you know, just stop sinning or whatever, start loving. It's, it's, not, it's, it's hard stuff. Love is hard. Obedience is certainly fundamental to, to love, and it's freeing when it's motivated by gospel grace, but nonetheless, it's not easy, and that's because of the ongoing impacts of sin and, and people being off the grid and our culture being a mess and, and, and people who hurt us and we hurt people. Love is messy. Further, love is multidimensional. Let, let me bring you to the next point of what I call overlapping groups. Love has different interrelated dimensions and, or overlapping groups to it. Uh, that is to say, when we talk about love, because it's such a broad term, it's helpful to talk about uh, specific kinds of loves. There's a popular book in 1960, if you haven't read it, it's written by Oxford scholar and Christian thinker C.S. Lewis, and the title is Four Loves. And in the book, Lewis uh, utilizes four different Greek words for love in the New Testament. Here, let me put them in front of you. They are storge, which speaks of a kind of natural affinity, of a love of affection, Eros is a Greek term that is used for physical passions, emotional passions, like romance, uh, sex. Phileo is a Greek term that is used for talking about enjoying one another, like brotherly love. We talk about Philadelphia, uh, right? The, it's, it's a city of, of, of brotherly love. Agape, finally, is a kind of love used inside of the scripture for giving charity. It is unconditional. It is relentless. Lewis recognizes that agape, the last love, is the greatest of the four loves. He sees it checking the other three loves, which without this love, run wild and make a mess of things. I find the categories or groups here very helpful when we're thinking about how hard it is to love and how messy love gets in a fallen world. Speaking of a fallen world, uh, we too all, all also often make mistakes, and I would be remiss not to point out that while Lewis's book is helpful, 
uh, technically speaking, when you look at these terms exhaustively in the Bible, you will find exceptions to these rules. Uh, so, for example, the term agape. Agape gets used in a crazy way in 2 Samuel uh, 13, 15 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, to refer to Amnon's incestuous rape. So while sometimes they can be used technically this way, those terms can also get used in other ways. And, and so there, it's not as clear in these four lines, but I think these are helpful for us when we're thinking about how messy love is. It, it's, eros is, is messy, especially when it's outside of marriage and falls into sin. Uh, st storge can uh, be a, a, a hard thing when you're dealing with affections and you get your feelings hurt. Phileo, in terms of brotherly and sisterly relationships, those can be very unique and painful in ways. Agape, of course, checking them all. On a very quick note, there's uh, three other kinds that uh, didn't make the book, but they're worth noting. Ludus is a kind of love that is playful love. It's, it's the love that children have for their friends, and it's marked by a desire to have fun and fellowship. The giggly, silly kids playing games and whatnot. We have a few families on our, on our church block where we live and a lot of little kids running around. And I just love it when I hear the little knock on the door, you know, it can all be play, you know, and, they, and they're just having fun. That's what we call ludus. It's just we're, we're having fun. We're in love in terms of just being little buddies who are, you know, playing dumb games. There's another kind of love called pragma. Pragma, this is where we get our idea of pragmatics from. It is a long-standing love, a long-term love. Uh, it matures and deepens over time. Um, uh, uh, the Hollands are last Sunday uh, here today and just thinking, wow, for 15 years like we've been in church together. There's a kind of pragma to that of getting to know someone over 15 years. Finally, there is philautia, which is the love of self. This one is highly misunderstood in our culture because we're really into ourselves. And the ancients understood that philautia has a good and a bad to it. As one author writes, the Greek sixth variety of love, philauta, or self-love, those clever Greeks like Aristotle realized that there were two types of it. One was an unhealthy variety associated with narcissism, where you become self-assessed and, and, and focused on personal fame and fortune. And the other is a healthier version where you are enhancing yourself with a wider capacity to love others. Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine 39 said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so understanding like we love ourselves, you know, so uh, we should love others just like that, you know. Uh, and there's a, there's a sense in which, you know, self-care or whatever that can be appropriate. But biblical love is ultimately focused on others. Now let me land the plane here because we've, run out of time. Others giving, the fifth point. I hope you still have 1 John in front of you. 1 John 3, 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So love is to be outward focused. It flows from the self to others. I heard it said, the Beatles said, uh, all you need is love. And then they broke up, you know. Um, 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. It is clear from Scripture that love is action and it's others-focused. And this is what makes love so difficult, because people are difficult. We lie to ourselves, we lie to others, we don't want the truth. Uh, but, but love is truth indeed. Reducing love to an emotion, or how I want you to look at me, or how I identify, or how I'm born, uh, that, that, that's easy. That's not difficult. And that is the danger with Pride Month, its doctrines, and its God. It wants people to think that love is not the truth. It is never wrong. 
It wants people to think that it's, it's not giving of the self, but it's actually how me, how I identify. It wants people to, to think it's, it's, it, it is something that we just define ourselves. And if you don't agree with me, you get canceled, you get cut off, you're met with anger. But that's ultimately not the kind of love that we have described here. We have a love that is forgiving, a love that looks at others and says, no matter what you do to me, I'm going to love you. I'm not going to cut you off. This brings us to the next point, sixth outcome, good. Our love is focused on other people and we're doing what is good for them. That's what love is, when you're doing what's good for others. Really quickly here, one of my, um, one of my favorite theologians, he's got a double PhD out of Dallas Seminary and Edinburgh University in Scotland. He writes this, what is love? It is seeking the highest good in the object loved. And ultimately good is what brings glory to God. Love in its purest form is seeking the glory of God. When the Bible says that God is love, it is saying that He glorifies Himself without any suggestion of selfishness or pride. In obeying the biblical man to love one another, believers are to seek the glory of God in each other's lives. In loving outside the family of God, believers are to seek God's glory in the lives of those unbelievers. To those outside the family of God, that is to glorify God in their lives, means primarily to seek their salvation. For an individual can glorify God in no better way than by displaying grace throughout all eternity. Of course, there are degrees of glorifying God. Whenever He is imitated, He is glorified. Therefore, uh, every attribute of God, when reflected in man's actions, brings glory to Him. But perhaps none does so as much as the display of His grace and the salvation of a person. That's a mouthful. A simple way of saying it is this. Um, love is a commitment of the will to the true good of the other person. That they would glorify God, whether lost or saved, they would, they would glorify God, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. Oh, that we could live that way. Oh, that we could live that way. A final point for us as we've reflected on what love is. Love starts by being grounded in God by getting people gritted back to Him, by recognizing the dimension of obedient grace, looking at some of these overlapping kinds of love to help us make sense out of relationships, by having this outward uh, focus, by having a focus that is committed to others' good. And finally, love is the mission of the church. Love should fuel us on mission. Love is sharing the gospel. Love is making disciples. A John Piper a guy known, a pastor known for his work in missions was asked this, where is love in our mission statement? And in response to that, to that question, where is love in our mission statement, uh, he, he, he uh, explained this in a sermon like this. He says, love is taking whatever pains are necessary, even at the cost of your life, to bring others into the all-satisfying, everlasting enjoyment of the supremacy of God. If you take two words of the mission and you put it together, you'll see this spread joy. Our mission is to spread joy, but only the joy that fills the deepest void of our hearts. The only joy that lasts forever is joy in the supremacy of God. If we give people everything in the world but this, they will not thank us in the end. What is love? To love is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. The heartbeat of our mission is love because the heartbeat of our mission is the joy of all peoples in the supremacy of God. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he gave us the great commission to go and make disciples. 
Jesus, before that, was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? He said, love God and love people. We love God, we love people, we go and we share the message of what He has done, the propitiation of sins. We share who He is, the triune God, the Son incarnate. I, I want to land on this because I, I think often when it comes to Pride Month and other topics, a lot of Christians just look like the secular cultural warriors of our, of our day. And they go super hard and they're super angry and reactionary. And I get it, it's hard. Uh, we got people giving social credit scores. Uh, we, you, know, we, you know, a guy just wants to go get a, a, you know, a beverage to drink and he's got a dude in a dress on his uh, favorite beverage. I mean, it's in your face, it's in the stores, you got all the slogans and all the rest. But we have to be reminded, like, we're all sinners. These are not uh, our enemies. This is our mission field. This is what we've been called to. And even if they were our enemies, we've been called to love our enemies, haven't we? And so we know love by this, 1 John 3, 16, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives. That is so radical, laying down your life to those who reject you. Um, earlier in this message, I contrasted it with other religions and whatnot and, and contrasted it with the God of the Pride Month who isn't going to love you that way. And so as we uh, close the sermon, we move now into a time of communion. And as we come to the communion table, we reflect on the mission field that God has given us. He's placed our church in Los Angeles. He's placed us in a city of confusion. He rescued us from confusion. He rescued us from sin. None of us are unscathed. Uh, I invite all of you if, you, if you haven't responded to this good news, it is good news. Receive Christ. Be forgiven of your sins. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who paid for you. Uh, he's the only one who could do it because he is both God and man in one person. He will reconcile you to God. He will give you new life. And he will show you a love that this world cannot offer. Let's come to the table. Let's celebrate what he has done for us. And let's uh, respond in song. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. Indeed, the gods of this world do not have that kind of love. We ourselves do not have that kind of love. And so when we make up gods, they often look like us. They are unforgiving. They give no love to those who are not grateful, uh, to those who do not love first. And yet we have read today in these Johannine texts in your sacred word about a love that is grounded in you, your triune love, about a love that flows to those who don't deserve it and don't want it, and yet you love us and you change us and you rescue us. As we come to the communion table now, I pray that we would be reminded of that love. As we think about the world and its confused notions of love, Lord, I, I pray that the word here today wouldn't make us focus on those people out there, but you would do heart work in us. Remove the calluses of our hearts. Where we have gone cold, Lord, warm, warm us. The sins that we used to fight and pray to be delivered from, that we've grown uh, 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 lazy in, Lord, rescue us. Put a fire in us. Give us forgiveness for those around us. Give us heavy hearts for the gospel. And Lord, not just a gospel that's for those people out there, but a gospel that feeds us and fills us with joy. Receive these songs of worship, our, our offerings this day, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.